art is useless, and that's why uh, it is essential to humanity. Um, God doesn't need us. Um, God stands outside of time and space and created out of His gratuity and out of His love. Um, we need to start from there. Makato Fujimura is an artist, writer, and speaker who is recognized worldwide as a cultural shaper. As a presidential appointee to the National Council on the Arts from 2003 to 2009, Fujimura served as an international advocate for the arts, speaking with decision makers and advising governmental policies on the arts. Fujimura's work is exhibited at galleries around the world, and he is one of the first artists to paint live on stage at New York City's legendary Carnegie Hall. Fujimura founded the international arts movement in 1992, and in celebration of the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, Crossway Publishing commissioned and published The Four Holy Gospels, featuring Fujimura's illuminations of the sacred texts. He and his wife Judy are members of Tim Keller's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, where Mako serves as an elder. The Acton Institute was honored to host Mako Fujimura at our annual 2014 Acton University, an annual four-day intensive exploring the intellectual foundations of a free society, where Mako served on the faculty and also delivered one of the evening's keynote addresses on the topic of culture care. It was my honor to sit with Mako on the last day of Acton University, where we engaged together in a wide-ranging conversation about the arts, faith, politics, and what it means to use our gifts to fulfill God's purposes in cultural flourishing. You are actually born in Boston, so you're an American citizen. You're here, you're born here because your father is doing his postdoctoral research with uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, and so the providence of God has you born here. Yes. But talk about Japan yes. and, um, you know, what, what, the, what your experience as now American citizen going back yes. to Japan and then your Christian faith, yes. uh, how that impacts your, your ancestry and, yes. and yes. Uh, all that background. Yeah, what was interesting is that I was drawn to 16th and 17th century Japanese art as a student, uh, as an undergrad in, in Pennsylvania. Um, as I studied art, I realized that uh, this tradition had uh, left an imprint in me. And that's partly because I grew up in, um, I was born in Boston and went to Sweden. And then I was in Kamakura, Japan, which is the 12th century capital of Japan, about an hour south of Tokyo. And spending time there has uh, richly place this imprint in my soul and um, that's what I was responding to when I looked at Japanese art that was at Boston Museum and uh, uh, art that was exiled from Japan during the war years protected by uh, Tenshin Okakura who was a scholar and an artist who brought over these works to protect them from getting um, you know um, getting burnt down so I saw those works. I was drawn to 16th and 17th century Japan uh, artworks, and I went to Japan because I wanted to see this culture once again for myself, re-examine it, my roots. Um, and yet um, I found myself in this kind of in-between cultures where I didn't really belong in Japan. as a, I was an outsider uh, studying this traditional form. Uh, 
but at the same time, I, I deeply cared about the, the Japanese culture more than the Japanese did. So I, I, my journey ha, uh, as a bicultural person has always been to have this ability to look objectively at my culture, uh, whether it be my American heritage or my Japanese heritage, and, and say, you know, my commencement speech was really about that. It was about what does it mean to love a country. Uh, and and they, it really comes down to having that objectivity um, of a bicultural stance uh, really helps uh, to do that. And, and so after I became a Christian, struggled with my faith, the culture of Japan and all that, um, but I came to understand that God intentionally brought me there to find Jesus and that Jesus was there all along uh, in the history of Japan, um, that he was there when the persecutions took place in 17th century, 16th century Japan, uh, history that I didn't know about when I, I became a Christian. And then, you know, it, it just opened up to me that um, the providence of God has directed uh, my steps uh, as, as you noted, uh, from my birth, uh, that there was this distinct guidance and, and um, even responsibility placed upon uh, my life uh, calling that um, would only be uh, captured uh, if I followed these steps uh, to go to Japan and uh, of all places and, and to uh, find Christ there. As a bicultural American, are you affected at all, uh, either positively or negatively, by the debate, the immigration debate, as we watch that unfold? And uh, we, we see these immigrants coming over the border down south of us from Mexico. Uh, what, what should a Christian response be to that, and particularly as someone as, uh, that has roots outside of this country who was born in this country? What what ought to be our reaction as believers and as Americans to the immigration crisis? Well, let's apply cultural care principle. Um, you know, I, I have been advocating that we change the metaphor from culture wars mindset to culture care. Culture war mindset will polarize this issue. Uh, will place conservatives and liberals in uh, you know different stance and. Um, and, and opposite uh, positions and, and to fight against each other. But let's, let's, let's for a moment pause, put, put, push the pause button and suppose that um, do what, what kind of care should we focus on? Well, first of all, uh, America is a nation that we care about, the freedom of expression and religion and um, all the things that America represents, we should care about those things, and there's no no issue with that. As uh, as Americans, we should all care about those things. We should care about fellow human beings. Uh, we were all immigrants at one point. Um, we wanted to escape tyranny and um, dictatorship, and there are many people around the world who looks to America as a place of freedom. We should care about that, um, not just the ideological principles behind it, but the people. So uh, rather than, you know, say what should the policy position be, because the policy position is always complex uh, depending on the circumstances 
every position is, uh, you know, is, uh, can be moved about. I think what we should focus on as a church, especially, is to how to care for uh, immigrants and how to, how to do it well. There are, of course, when you do that, uh, you might uh, go against uh, established norm normative ways, uh, including laws of the land that, that are set up um, to um, you know, protect certain constituency or certain conditions of the land. And those things must be respected, yes. But, but there are also, uh, as Judge Napolitano said, you know, there, there is this reality of the natural law operating outside of that. Um, and so as, as Christians and as uh, people who follow Christ, um, you know, we, sh we should care about those outsiders coming in because Christ himself is an immigrant uh, coming into our homeland and reminding us that our home is not here. You know, it's, uh, we are aliens in a strange land. So that, sh that should dictate how, at least how we view uh, people. I don't um, know enough about policy of this issue to come up with an intelligent argument for either side, but I, I know that uh, we, ha we have dehumanized each other enough and demonized uh, the other side. Um, if we're going to have a meaningful, constructive, lang you know, uh, conversation, let's let's find out where we um, share um, uh, the, the common ground that we, we share. Um, and and as Andy Crouch talked about, you know, uh, the real test is the vulnerable people who cannot defend from themselves. And no matter what your stance is, we should be. Um, we should risk our power to care for them. And, and as a result, no matter what the policy decisions come out of that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll make this country a stronger country and this, this, this uh, debate more meaningful. As a bicultural Japanese-American, when I use the phrase American exceptionalism, yes. how does that resonate or not with you? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I believe in, uh, as an outsider, uh, looking in, you know, I, I'm an insider and outsider, but uh, as an outsider looking in, American exceptionalism is there. Yeah, it, it's what makes America uh, wonderful. But I, as Alexil de Tocqueville said, you know, America's uh, great because she is good. And if she ceases to be great, uh, she ceases to be good. America will no longer be great. And I, th I think that the, the debates that we've been having on every issue has indicated that there's that goodness has uh, waned, has, has lessened uh, in, as a priority of, of our condition. And, and uh, as American, um, I, I want to recover that goodness um, and, and to, um, you know, in, in order that we can we can defend what we believe and be passionate about convictions, um, but at the same time understand that the complexity of time demands a, a rigorous debate um, that allows for differences to exist. Um, if we can't have plurality of opinions and uh, diversity of point of view within the same movement, 
toward freedom and toward justice. Um, uh, you know, the, fun- the reality of this entrepreneurial democracy will only um, become, um, you know, this, this machinery that, that has uh, passed its time. So American exceptionalism still uh, applies, but it, it, it is not something that we should take for granted. It is something that um, requires constant vigilance and um, attention and constant care um, that uh, such, a, such a place, uh, such a miraculous place, exists on this earth. And um, we should do what we can to pass this on to the next generation in better shape um, and, uh, you know, that people, uh, that we care for, for this land um, so, so that it can flourish and we can help the world. Your father is a pioneer researcher in acoustics, yes. phonetics. Yes. Your, your brother is, uh, you describe him as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Yes. Those both seem to be useful, <laughs> utilitarian, uh, artist. In, in, in out of that does not quite seem to fit that mold. Uh, place what you do in the context of calling, because your father is called to do what he does, your brother is called to do what he does, but there may be some in our audience who say, to be an artist, calling? I mean, that's, uh, that's just, you know, kind of doing whatever you want to do, and what, you, what useful utilitarian purpose does it possibly serve? So place that in, in the context of calling. Sure, and um, art is useless, and that's why uh, it is essential to humanity. Um, God doesn't need us. Um, God stands outside of time and space and created out of his gratuity and out of his love. Um, we need to start from there. Um, everything we, we see and we, we have is given by this goodness and delight of God to and not only to create uh, his creatures to be his image bearers and uh, like him in uh, how we desire to create uh, gratuitously but um, at the same time we need to be reminded that you know uh, everything we do uh, God doesn't need need us to do uh, but because God chose us for tasks greater than what we can possibly imagine or think, um, we are immensely, immensely valued um, by, by the Creator, uh, God. Um, so in that equation, um, what comes through to me is the, um, is the utilitarian pragmatism that we have come to value in this society uh, is, is almost the uh, sign that uh, God's reality, this gratuitous gesture of love, we do not understand as a culture and we do not exercise every day as a reality. So our worship has, has changed into something of a uh, utilitarian virtue. That um, So instead of having... God, we're seeing God as the grand artist um, who continues to create in, in some gratuitous manner uh, through us. Um, we have made him into a CEO of, of, of our, uh, the company, you know, of, of, of the church. 
and um, the bottom line of utility and efficiency has become the primary means that we measure success. And uh, we are all dehumanized in, in that world. Uh, we are all just machines or cogs of a machine that, that uh, is only useful as, mu you know, as much as we can keep rotating and spinning off efficiently to um, you know, fulfill our purposes for, for the machinery of the church. And that, to me, is, is a, um, uh, it's, it falls short, certainly, of the gospel uh, of Christ. Christ did not need to come, but he did, because he chose, you know, he's chosen us to become uh, heirs of, of this grand reality. And uh, we, I don't think we fully understand, you know, this reality that uh, Romans 7 and Romans 8 tells us, uh, this glorious freedom of, a, of children of God, that we're not orphans, but we're filled with uh, God's Spirit, and uh, nothing can separate us from the uh, love of Christ. And so love is gratuitous. Love often puts us in a position of vulnerability, and, um, and, and many times we cannot justify love. Action uh, that is um, brought on by love is, is, is often seen, at least at the moment, as um, somewhat wasteful and useful, useless. Um, because we, you know, ultimately love, love is unconditional and uh, it's not transactional. <laughs> So if the Christian gospel is about love, then we, we really have to recover that sense of gratuity and, um, and friendship of God toward the other um, that, that, uh, that may not you know, be able to get back. How has poetry and literature influenced what you do as an artist? I have always thought that my art, visual art, is connected to some kind of poetic uh, knowledge and uh, of course I read William Blake um, and studied him in college and that was very significant for me um, as I began to integrate um, and uh, understand this tradition of illumination that Blake was really using to create his work. It was an uh, integrated uh, uh, way of expressing a whole world, creating a um, universe of his own in a way, but uh, reflecting the redemptive journey that uh, we're all on. And speaking of redemptive journey, Blake was used by God in, in your life, in your own conversion experience. Uh, as well as was your wife and uh, and your reluctance attendance at uh, the church she was attending in in Tokyo, right. you described uh, your your feelings about church uh, as you felt that it was irrelevant at best, right. but substantively it was the truth claims of Christianity. I am the way, the truth, and the life that you you say you bristled at. Yes. What was the context in which those that particular philosophical position had been drawn and what, what drew you out of it? Yeah, well, I think many factors there, but particularly the language of poetry, you know, beauty points to the truth, but it, it, it does so in a more integrated way. Um, so maybe I bristle at the um, objective exclusive Claims, but I realized once I understood who Jesus was, um, 
that was it was uh, obvious uh, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so uh, what William Blake's poetry did, and this is particularly his last poem, Jerusalem, which is somehow close to 200 pages of plates. Um, so if you, you know, in a book, it will be some 400 pages. Um, what Blake does is to encapsulate Gospel John, um, and there's a beautiful summarization of the Gospel at the end of the end of Jerusalem um, and I waded through the poem I got to the end and I realized that the claims of Christianity had not changed uh, for since its inception and uh, I was really astounded by that because I had studied Buddhism and Shintoism and so so many other religious forms and uh, I never found this consistency so I was very much struck by uh, this message of the gospel uh, orthodoxy that uh, ran throughout and Blake really came back to that orthodox belief at the end of his life. What were you hearing at your wife's church in Tokyo that uh, that helped you? Um, what I saw uh, more than what I heard was a group of very passionate believers who practice what they preached um, and um, they understood uh, both the difficulties of faith um, as well as the beauty of it. Um, I thought it was beautiful that you know we still in these days have a candlelight service on Christmas Eve and people spoke up and uh, said what they believed. Uh, whether I agreed with that, with, with that or not was irrelevant. It was the authenticity of that moment. Um, there was a pastor from New Zealand there. Um, uh, he never went to college, but um, his preaching was so beautiful. Uh, it, it was eloquent. And uh, he, he, I could tell he believed what what he was uh, saying, and and so that kind of authenticity spoke to me. I didn't really fully understand what I was hearing or agreed with, mo you know, uh, most of it actually in the beginning. But um, I, as I understood and looked at the claims of Christ, um, it made more and more sense to me. And uh, of course, my wife, um, her care and nurture for me and my soul was uh, um, very much something that God has used uh, at that time. You describe in a recent com commencement address uh, a substitute teacher yes. who talks about your gift and, um, and asks you a very profound question. Yeah. When you think about that moment, but not only that moment, but the gift that, that you have, mm -hmm. prior to conversion to Christianity, prior to faith in Christ, right. how does conversion, how does Jesus and faith in him, if at all, affect yeah. the gift. Yeah, and I, I I, think my conversion was really an inversion because it really was uh, Holy Spirit illumining um, through the creative process, um, you know, pointing to Jesus. And uh, once I understood the ontology of my faith, um, it just, everything just clicked. 
Um, so uh, this gift of art was always a conduit through which I can uh, access uh, the spirit's uh, presence in my life. And I, I knew it was a gift. I, I knew it wasn't mine. Um, and there was some force running through me. I just didn't know where this was coming from until I met Jesus. And um, so I think there's um, a great deal of uh, grace working in my life. Um, and, you know, and I, when I became a member of Redeemer Presbyterian Church and um, I was trained uh, and became an elder on, in the session, uh, Tim Keller asked me, you know, so, so why are you a Presbyterian? You know, and I said, well, I'm a Presbyterian because I, 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 I was a Presbyterian before. I knew I was a Presbyterian, <laughs> uh, meaning uh, my great uncle was a Presbyterian, mis- uh, Presbyterian evangelist in southern Japan. I didn't know that until I joined Redeemer and my mother told me about all this. And I was like astounded. I, I had no idea that I had that heritage. And my, my, uh, my mother was not a practicing uh, believer at the time. And, and she never told me that uh, I had this whole lineage of great Christians in my family. And, and I, you know, looking back, it makes sense that I, I had to go to Japan to uh, find Jesus because it was their prayers that brought me there. Perhaps the greatest thing that we can do as, as a Christian community is to behold. Behold our God. Behold His creation. The church has exiled beauty from its conversations. And I think that we need to rediscover the beautiful um, in in order to uh, recover ourselves, uh, our humanity. Jesus seemed to indicate that beauty is a door into the gospel. Beauty is the door. Mark 14, Mary of Bethany barges in and uh, breaks open this jar of nard that she's been saving up all her life. And disciples are furious at her because she is doing what a woman should only be allowed to do on her wedding day, which was to anoint her bridegroom. Everybody knew what that aroma signified. And they're expecting Jesus to to kick her out. And Jesus said, no, you have no idea. You don't understand this night. You know, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Mary is responding to this encounter with Jesus when Jesus intentionally came late. He was supposed to come and heal Lazarus, her brother, and he's dead. So she's very upset with him can imagine. And Jesus' answer to Mary was his tears. Jesus wept. (laughs) When Jesus wept, it was this gratuitous, useless 
beauty that was flowing through him into her. And she knew that. And so what she could do was to think, what is the most valuable thing that I have to offer back to him? So she grabs this jar, runs in. She wasn't thinking about this drama that she would create, probably. All she knew was that Jesus is going to suffer. So the only thing she can do is anoint him. But what she has done is beautiful and, and enduring because it's ephemeral, because it's useless, because it's a waste. God somehow demands of us so, so much more than just this transactional nature. It is really about the gift that we've been given. And the only response we can give back is with extravagance, with gratuitous beauty. And we need to tell this story, not the story of the pragmatism, not the story of utility, this story of extravagance, gratuitous beauty, is the gospel. That is the story that I am, I have come to die for. You are a participant in Acton Institute's uh, recently produced video series, For the Life of the World. In, in your segment, you, you, you say any number of profound things, but one of the things that you say is beauty is a door into the gospel. Is beauty objective, subjective? How, how do we know when something is beautiful, and, and how does that connect with the gospel? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not uh, trying to be evasive, but it is both, isn't it? Uh, it's a paradox. Um, beauty holds in its, uh, its grip a re- reality that is both beyond, beyond us and, and is embedded in us. So our senses have, have this particular propensity toward a, a, a de- predetermined uh, form, which, which I, I suppose is, is objective. Um, but at the same time, we, each of us have a different way of uh, processing that, so that makes us objective. Um, but ultimately, you know, be- beauty is uh, connected to our praise of, of God. Um, and it is directional, um, and it is um, a way for us to uh, worship, um, to uh, give assent to the creation's power, um, uh, but but also to um, to be able to sing um, toward uh, the ultimate feast uh, consummation that is that is to come, and and to place ourselves there, even as we wrestle with the present darkness, conditions um, of our lives, um, that we can live in that feast moment um, and, and be fed from the Spirit, uh, that reality. And, and then if we can do that, uh, beauty becomes a way to, for us to um, prepare this earth for heaven's invasion. And, and the transformation that would happen ultimately. One of the other things that you said in, in your segment in Flow for the Life of the World is the church has exiled beauty from its conversations. Uh, earlier in a piece, uh, it's actually a speech you gave at the uh, International Art Movement, I think uh, the, you said the arts has been culturally orphaned by the world and the church. 
Philip Graham Riken uh, several years ago wrote that book, Art for Art's Sake. Does that give you some hope that at least someone within the church is is viewing art for art's sake and and sees the necessity of it? And and what is is the church just ambivalent about art? And what's the danger of that? Well, Philip was one of the first pastors to ever purchase one of my pieces, and I was astounded when he did that. And um, because he heard me say, you know, uh, most of my collectors, at least in the '90s, were people outside of church. They were collecting my art that was dedicated to God as a Christian, um, and I was faithfully making art and exhibiting them in public spheres uh, in New York City, of all places. And um, he came in, and he, he, you know, was willing to um, support what I was doing, and that, that, that made a huge impact on my life as an artist. When a pastor comes in and buys your painting, that, that says a lot about the priorities of that pastor. And uh, he has always shown that uh, in his life. Now as the president of Wheaton, um, you know, and, and, and that makes a huge, huge impact. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not the, that the funding you receive from art, you know, from setting your work. It's, it's really that voice of encouragement that says, you know, uh, you do matter. And what, what you have done um, is important to me. And I know it's, you know, I, because I know it's a sacrifice for people to um, do that. So um, I am hopeful because of those examples. And uh, I am grateful for uh, all those Christians who have stepped up since then and became supporters of uh, not only my work but international arts movement and what I, we've been trying to do to cultivate patronage um, by the world and by the church. Um, uh, you know, this reality of being an orphan can run both ways. An orphan, uh, sometimes it's hard for an orphan to act like a prince even though you're living in a palace. Um, and um, I think in certain conditions, uh, we artists uh, tend to have this orphan mindset. And uh, even though they are in a context where provision is given and uh, they, they are allowed to thrive, um, they, they can still be angry and upset and complaining and have this entitlement attitude. And, and that has to change, too, you know. So, so it, it really is, um, you know, I, I always tell artists to, be, to lead with generosity, to uh, give away their art. You know, Emily Dickinson gave away her poems, you know. <laughs> um, why don't we find ways to benefit society? Lead with your generosity because you know that art in its intrinsically is a generous process. Um, but, but for the church, I, I always say, you know, if you value artists, um, then you really, you really have to you know, this is not just, you know, an invisible capital. There, there's a reality of uh, financial reality that, you know, as all people, you know, pastors need to be paid. 
artists need to be paid for their for their work done for sake of the kingdom. Uh, we need to send missionaries and emissaries to, to to cultural fields that can lead our children into uh, very difficult terrains of discerning and identifying uh, the the current cultural patterns. We we're not doing any of that right now. So um, it is time that we. Uh, re-examine ourselves, uh, what our priorities are, um, because the budget will always follow our priority. You know, where the money is, you will discover what people are passionate about, what people value, and so um, uh, that that needs to um, be the you know the so so this order of loves needs to be the place where we first begin this conversation and um, and I, I, I am encouraged by, by by what's happening. You've said that enduring art cannot be created without a covenantal community. Yes. In your keynote here at Acton University, you likened the artist to the canary in the coal mine. Yes. Is the church the coal mine? That's my metaphor, not yours. I may be stretching it a bit, but but on a Sunday morning, do, do artists feel isolated from from the life of the church in terms of, of what the how the church is utilizing them? Well, um, we saw Amanda Vernon sing. And, you know, I, I tweeted, I said, I see colors in her voice. And the reason I said that is uh, because, I, I you know, I can see colors when people sing um, in their thriving. She, she is singing as, as an expectant mother, which to me was a very beautiful picture of what ought to happen. And I know from knowing musicians that how hard it is to, to perform when, when you're expecting and you have all sorts of things happen to you out in the world, you know, that people say all sorts of things and have weird <laughs> reactions, you know, when you are expecting. And but her voice was so resplendent because of the community that this Acton community has welcomed her. Uh, this global reality in which this woman, a descendant of you know African American uh, uh, devastation, uh, is able to sing freely in front of thousands. Uh, and and what a voice, you know, and and so so that that is a picture of uh, thriving, and when when an artist is able to do that, the whole community comes alive, you know. It's as if that she gives permission for for all of us to stand and and sing, and um, and that. So she, you know, maybe the church is one of the coal mines. It could be uh, that because we're just as uh, tainted by the uh, utilitarian pragmatism of the world. Um, we're our bottom lines are very similar to any other organization out there. You know, as as the film uh, uh, for the life of the world notes. Um, you know, divorce rates from everything, statistically, we're no different from the world. Um, so in that sense, we are in the same coal mine <laughs> with, with the rest of the world. And artists are singing. And, but occasionally, you see a glimpse of what can become uh, this glorious freedom, reality that uh, Amanda's voice carries, you know, into this 
um, place where uh, she's her voice is received with gratitude, with grace. That the fact that she's ex expecting a new life becomes a positive thing, rather than uh, liability <laughs> to her career. Um, those are the, all things that the church can celebrate and 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 like shout into the world from the rooftops and say. We want a culture like this. We want an abundant, flourishing culture where uh, a pregnant mother can sing her heart out and everybody joins her. Um, that's, that's a picture of the church that um, I, I think you know, was, uh, ex um, was seen at, at this conference. You and I are both reformed in our, in our background and orientation part of the Reformation, not, not, a, not a major part, but part of it was a reaction to icons and images. And the Reformed uh, movement in America certainly is, and around the world for that matter, is one that is word-oriented. Is much of maybe what uh, the church's uh, ambivalence toward the arts maybe have to, is it grounded in, in our rightful orientation to the word without an understanding that, that the Logos can also be imaged and uh, the Word was made flesh. Yeah, and I, you know, when I illumined the Bible, I was illumining the Word of God. Um, and there's a, there's a distinct privilege that an artist is given. Whether you use image or not, by designing with fonts, designing a a book uh, without any image, you are still designing a visual <laughs> uh, document. So in that sense, for an artist, um, you know, that word-centeredness has, has an uh, exceptional definition to it, that it is not just, you know, how we um, think of as logos of word itself as um, uh, you know this um, effect of cognition, but it, it is it is also sensory. And in that sense, I, I do think the Reformation uh, reaction to icons and so forth um, has uh, has been misinterpreted, um, certainly, um, and that it was fear driven uh, more than love driven that we, uh, I think, looking back, we can begin to uh, understand and perhaps correct some of the um, uh, distortions of, of how we might treat and honor the Word of God. Um, and, um, in fact, um, illuminating the words, I have been, I have experienced personally uh, the power, uh, uh, the enormous power of Word of God in my life, uh, how, how complex it is and how beautiful uh, uh, the Word of God is. And, and, and I, I could only, sh you know, I, I shudder to, to think that um, my hands uh, could actually illumine uh, the borders, uh, and my whole task was was to point um, to to bring out what the Word of God can bring out, um, and it's a very limited perspective. Um, and I I 
understood why um, in, in the medieval times there was a whole community who regularly worshipped and trained themselves to illumine the word of God. This is not a task that one, one person can do. Um, you need a community uh, dedicated generationally to produce uh, something that, that is dedicated to the purpose of glorifying God. Grand Rapids, Michigan hosts an annual art show. Yes. And this fall, we're going to be honored at, at the Acton Institute to host an original piece yeah. by Mako Fujimura. Can you describe that piece? Is it in process? Is it finished? It's a finished piece uh, that's been shown at the uh, Dillon Gallery in New York uh, for my solo exhibit and also at Yale University for a mini retrospective a year ago. Um, it's a very unique piece. It's, it's called Walking on Water and is featured in the uh, Golden Sea documentary. You actually see me working on this with my assistant. And um, I began the series of large paintings uh, after 3-11, tsunami disaster in Japan. And after 9-11, I spent a decade dealing with destructive power fire in, in, in my imaginative uh, dealings. And uh, after 3-11, I, I began to work with the destructive power of water. And so this painting is done with this particular type of azurite um, that's been created for a particular mixture that I made for this painting technique. And it is painted with water, um, but um, it is 11 feet by 7 feet, very large. And Acton is so bold and to create a wall for it. <laughs> And uh, um, and I, I'm, I'm just blown away by their generosity and gesture to do that. Um, but ultimately, you know, this painting is about faith and how can we walk on water uh, faced with intractable disasters that uh, that is in front of us. Um, I visited Japan in April, so about a month after tsunami took place and um, my friend who grew up in Ishinomaki uh, one of the northern uh, coastal towns uh, her family uh, fish of fishermen uh, you know this a fishing village the whole town was washed away their whole business gone uh, they're still not recovered at all um, and this reality of today that we're faced with in, in addition to that, you know, of course we have the nuclear disaster of Fukushima just a few miles south of Ishinawaki and so this, this, we live in a very difficult, complex time and uh, you know, my role as an artist is to respond intuitively uh, but, but to bring something that is both profound and beautiful uh, to address these issues so all of us can begin to uh, journey together and, and somehow find a way um, you know, to create art that people can respond to, resonate to. And, um, so I, I, I'm looking forward to our prize. I, I've never been to our prize, um, so um, this is going to be a very... Uh, fun experience for me. I look forward to seeing other artists' works, and um, and you know it's 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 just a, I'm sure fantastic environment. Uh, 
but ultimately, you know, I'm excited about an effort such as this to care for culture and care for artists, and we, we need more efforts like that and uh, to be able to, you know, share in that journey with, with other artists and audience. Uh, it's going to be terrific. The Acton Institute is very honored, Mako, to have you here this week at Acton University, and we are so looking forward to having you back this fall at Art Prize. So thank you so much for taking time with us. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Paul, for, uh, and, and thank you to all the Acton uh, staff and volunteers and, and the unicorn who, uh, <laughs> who, who I met and uh, is a wonderful addition to uh, my Twitter feeds and uh, you know it's it's just uh, it's just fantastic that you have a unicorn as as as, as your one of your staff and and, and I, I hope you will continue to serve you well. Thank you, Marco. The Acton Unicorn, which Mako refers to there at the end of our conversation, made his debut appearance at Acton University 2014, and his identity remains a mystery, although you can follow the Acton Unicorn on Twitter, at Acton Unicorn. You can also follow our guest, Makato Fujimura, at his website, MakatoFujimura.com, and on Twitter, at IamFujimura. Audio and video resources from the recently concluded 2014 Acton University are available at our website at www.acton.org. For the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I'm Paul Edwards.